Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 14, and I'll read through uh, verse 27. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the heaven beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable signs and innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he is promised. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. This is the word of the Lord. I appreciate when someone else reads. For those of you who call this home, you know why. Um, but I want to welcome you here into uh, what, what is a challenging text, but a really good one. Uh, in, in fact, I, I would start it off this way with a question, and, and you can interact at this point in the sermon. Show of hands. Have you ever wanted to quit? Yeah, okay. <laughs> Some emphatic hand raising. Well, there's a prayer time afterwards. It's that, you know, when, when you're in that space of, you know, anything, absolutely anything could be better than this. I, I, I will confess, there, there's been seasons in my life, particularly, and I've really had one career, so as a, as a pastor, sitting somewhere and watching people haul drywall and being envious, and then there's something wrong with your heart in that moment, that, you, you know, something is going on that, that makes you think anything would be better. This is where we get that idea of, of the grass is greener. You, you peer over the fence, and all you can see is one aspect that looks completely outside of your context, amazing and perfect, and yet you have no true perspective of it. That's, that's kind of what's going on when we want to quit. In fact, we have this concept that, that's kind of become prevalent in culture now called quiet quitting. It's this idea of, I'm going to put in the bare minimum. I'm going to leave exactly when I can at work. There's going to be a completely passionless and, and disembodied uh, version of, I'm just doing all that I need to to get the day done and nothing more. 
because my heart's not in it. In these moments, we're speaking to something that, that is akin to, honestly, what good is it anyway? And if you've ever had that thought or if you've ever been in that space, you, you might even be in that space today, uh, you'll know that there is an internal wrestle. And, and we're speaking to something of it's perhaps burnout, but I would, I would say more broadly, it's a, a feeling of hopelessness. Where is this going? And the author of Hebrews writes to the church as if to shake them by the collar and say, you have a hope. You have a real hope. And in fact, I, I don't want us to lose what was just read because of its complexity. It, it's quite possible that many of us, we don't know what to do with this because it's speaking to terms, it's alluding to other stories in the Bible that, that seem kind of elusive to us and we lose or we lose touch with all that it's being said. And so to kind of unpack it well, let me take you back to the opening parts of the chapter. And if you're familiar with the church or if you hung, have hung around church people long enough, this will be familiar to you. Verses uh, 1 and 2 of Hebrews 12 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God, of the throne of God. I, I appreciate that text. It, it, it actually, every time, warms something in my heart because it, it, you know, it says, keep running, keep going. Again, the author is, is speaking to the church saying, this is written to people of faith going, don't stop, don't quit, don't give up. If, if I were to argue one point and then work backwards as to prove it this morning, it would be this. Church, you have a hope and it, it's not ethereal, it's real. You can stand on it. You have a hope that, that needs to work itself deep into your guts so that you can move forward every day. And that hope is, is found in your faith. And what he's saying is, don't lose faith. And I, I encourage you to rework probably poor understanding that might be present in some of your understanding of, of Hebrews 12. Because we sometimes read these opening verses as if it's a, a charge for us to work harder or try harder. We, we cling to words like, let us run with endurance. Let us work really hard. Let us cling to this thing as if we have to aspire to some sort of grit your teeth, dig your heels in, you get what you put or sorry, you get out what you put into it kind of faith in Jesus, and that's not what the text is saying. But we, we build that because we have an understanding that, that surely the author is calling us to do something here. And, and that's true, but it's not to build a righteousness, build an argument, build a foundation for yourself. He's saying, no, you've been given one. If you were to go back one chapter in your Bibles, and this is why we encourage you to bring them, you could quickly read through chapter 11, which is called the faith chapter, where he, he articulates this foundation of all these heroes of the Old Testament biblical uh, imagery of faith. And then why would he shift gears and then go, so you need to work harder? He's saying, no, you need to keep your faith. This is the one thing that's going to 
hold your feet to the ground. It's going to allow you to move forward in life, in its adversity, in its loneliness, in its difficulty. Because without it, you're, you're easily going to get to that place where you want to quit. You, you want to step out. He's saying, church, don't, don't lose your faith. This is the one thing that counts. And we look at this, and, and let me quickly just walk through this to make a, a solid case before we build into the text we just read. He says, you know, let go of every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Now, now here's where as a pastor, you, you can do a lot with this that, that will provoke and, and speak to the conscience of our hearts where you might go, you know, there, there are always those persistent and problematic sins. And you can do the shotgun effect, look to the audience, list a few, and you know the land. You know, lust, greed, deception. You gotta let those go. That's true, but that's, that's not the point of what he's saying. He's not saying there's this one problematic sin in your life and it's going to trip you up every time because if you don't do that, you're going to lose it all. In fact, if that's how you interpret verse 1 and 2, you're hooped by the time you get to verse 14. Yes, I just said hooped. <laughs> which says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness for, wit, for without which no one will see the Lord. Now, we don't use the word holiness in our everyday language, so let me give us a working definition this morning. It means to be completely sold out for the Lord. It means there's no question as you look at that person's life that whether it's present or past, whether it's public or private, they are completely in love and following Jesus. Now, it, without that, you have no chance of seeing the Lord. In that space, how many of you feel really confident in your holiness this morning? I thought Julie were raising her hand for a moment. <laughs> I was like, Julie, she leads us in worship, so yes, of course. <laughs> no, we, by that measure, we're all going, man, I don't know how we're going to do this. I mean, we're going to have to dig down so deep to, to conjure up something or to develop something or create an argument for something that would say we're holy, and it's not what he's saying. He's saying, you've been given a holiness in Jesus, and you need to learn to stand firm in it, not to build up an argument for yourself. That sin which clings so closely is this. When things are hard, we, we want to abandon ship. You know, if, if you're here today and you are a follower of Christ, and, and, and you might be new in your walk with Christ, or you might be 20 years in, we all have days when we think to ourselves, I got baptized, and, and, and I feel like the only thing I got was this lousy T-shirt. Because it's like everything just got harder. I don't know how many times, and, and this is a weekly occurrence where people sit down with me and they're like, I, I chose to follow Jesus and, and I lost my friend or I lost my job or, or relationships are just getting harder or life is getting more difficult. Not, things don't seem to slow down. They seem to speed up. Things don't seem to make sense. They get more confusing. What's with that? And you might be in that space this morning. And, and here's what we do when we're in a, a, adversity, when we're in difficulty, when we're feeling lonely, we look for the quickest, easy button that we can press to get off this crazy thing. We do that. In fact, transparent self-disclosure, my wife and I we went and visited show homes yesterday, which is, you know, a wonderful exercise in coveting. 
you know, and you, and you walk in so hopeful and you leave so downtrodden. You know, you come back to your home and like, this is a shack. You know, and you, you tour these homes, you think like, like life would be amazing here. You know, and, and we were foolish enough to bring our children because they're all like, this will be my room and this will be, and this, actually one of my daughters says, and dad, there's even room for you here. Which, I just love their headspace. Like, thank you for including me. All that that does in my, like, my heart was formulating one thought. You know what, if we, if we did this, maybe that would alleviate all the aches and pains we're feeling right now. You know, maybe a new job, maybe a new city, maybe new friends. You know, we, we do that. We scheme for what is that one big decision which will change it all. Because clearly this one big decision I made seems to be very difficult and may, i got to change it. And quitting is that. Walking away is that. And, and I say this from personal experience. I also say this as somebody who's entertained and walked to the edge of quitting and come back, but also in many times in life, I've, trans, you know, transversed, I've stepped over that line and found myself going, that didn't help. You know, you, you walk away from a friendship, you walk away from a commitment, you walk away from a team, you walk away from your job thinking this will be the relief and the, uh, a way of alleviating all the pressure. And does it? No. The author is saying, church, I know you're pressed. I know this is hard. I know there are days where it's going to be like, this, this doesn't make sense. But there is a hope, and you've got to learn how to stand in it. This is going to cling to you. Church, I, this is not the end of the sermon, so hang in there. But this is the truth. If you follow Jesus, this is going to cling with you. Because it's not easy. In fact, go to Jesus' words where he's like, ah, oh, you love me? Great. The world's going to hate you. So what do we do with that? In fact, this phrase, there is a, so great a cloud of witnesses, we sometimes misinterpret that. He, he, the author is alluding, and by the way, the richness of this chapter is that the author seems to weave in not just what's being present, but also the present reality of the unseen realm that is truth and ultimate reality for believers as we have faith and as we know it through God's word. And he's bringing all those images in at once. And so don't read that as if like, oh, okay, there's a lot of people watching him. He's speaking to the heavenly host and all those who have passed away in Christ already standing in his presence, watching the church, watching those who have faith in Jesus right now and saying, they're a cloud. In other words, a great amassed witness of people. And, and if we read this like, man, i got to really dig deep and work hard for this, we're going to read that like, I've got accountability of people watching me and I can't mess up. And that's, I'd argue that's not what it's saying. Don't think accountability. Think of a witness towards, you know, Solidarity. There is a church, both present and past, both physical and in the spiritual realm, that stands with us and us with them, going, we know and we're here with you. That's part of the value in our gathering. As we move forward in the fall, we're encouraging you, church, we, we want you to have two touch points a week of the corporate gathering, that's, that's this, and then of something small where you have 
personal relationships with people, one-on-one, life group, involved in a ministry, you can take your pick, but where you are constantly aware of this, this cloud, this group around you that's going, we're doing this together. When you are struggling, we're struggling. And we're going to tell you to press in. We're going to tell you to keep going. Church, I have to say this as a pastor. There are, there are many days where I use you. And I mean that in the sense of I need to know that there are faces and relationships and people I care about that I minister to because without that, I don't want this job. So I remember, like, I'll go through our list of families and I'll be like, you know what? I love being here because that family's here. I love being here because these are my friends. I love being here because I've seen them grow in faith. I've seen their kids grow up. They're, I've been able to baptize. and incur- I need that because there's solidarity in that and it holds my feet firm. Moreover, when we read this, it's supposed to give us greater peace. Now, let's, let's take that foundation. Let's move into the text we read. The author, again, he's emphasizing the value of faith. Again, we need to read this as going, don't don't just hang in there to be good people. He's saying, no, don't let go of your faith. You need this. If anything, in fact, again, he builds from chapter 11, all these patriarchs of the faith who experience miraculous things, the seas parting, God's hand of provision, God moving mightily in their lives. And he says, like, these are the champions of faith. But this is how chapter 11 ends and transitions into the chapter we just read, saying this. And all these, again, that's a reference to the Old Testament heroes of faith, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us. That's, like, insert your name there if you're a follower of Jesus. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. That's huge. If you don't pick up what he's saying, it's saying this. Those champions of faith, though they experienced incredible things, the kind of thing that you read in your Bible, like, oh, if only I experienced that, then no questions. I'd, I'd, I'd be lock solid, rock steady. He's saying, they didn't receive what you did, and that is the fulfillment of God's promise in his son, Jesus Christ, which should be exceedingly more than what any of them have experienced. And that's for you. And as they watch you, as they revel in and celebrate in Jesus' gift through his death, resurrection, and ascension, they go, man, that's a gift for us. Church, we, we have everything And so when we get to this place of, I don't know if it's worth it. I don't know if if this is enough for me. We are questioning the the most firm foundation you'll ever receive. We are not given this list of heroes to go, aspire to be like them. We're given this list of heroes to go, and God worked with them to build to this moment so that you can be people of faith because they ha- you have received far more than what any of them have. I, if we were to continue looking in this passage, I've already mentioned this, that, that the threat to holding on to faith, remaining in faith, 
And if I were to just rephrase that, if, if the, that sounds like an ethereal or strange phrase for you, it's, you know, remaining a passionate Christian, not wavering. If the threat to that is difficulty, adversity, loneliness, we, we see it very clearly in verse 15 where he says, let no bitterness spring up. No root of bitterness, sorry, spring up. What is he referring to in that? You know, if, if you are in adversity where things just seem inexplicably hard, when, when you are in a place of difficulty, when things seem unbearable, when you are in, in a position of loneliness where it just seems uh, like you are isolated and, and beyond any support, you are in a position where you are, you're in a, prime position to grow in bitterness. And, and bitterness is essentially this. It's that I, I'm in a, a space where I'm going to entertain quitting. I'm in a space where I'm going to entertain that this isn't fair. I'm in a space where I'm going to um, begin looking for my exit strategy. Bitterness is that place where it says, and it will spring up all sorts of trouble. That's speaking to the corporate. And then it's, and it will defile. That speaks to the individual. If you leave this unchecked, it will destroy. And bitterness is this. You notice it says the root. Only you know in the early stages if there's bitterness under the surface. Nobody else will. But, and by the time it starts to peer its head above the surface, when it springs up, that's when we're in danger because it's already got a solid root. You know, if you've ever been in a life group, a small group where there's a bitter person and you're all like, so what do you think of the sermon? And one person's just like, I don't know if it's any good. You're like, whoa. Bitterness is threatening to dismantle the hope and the faith of that group. If you've ever lived in a family where there's a member of that family, nothing in life seems to satisfy, nothing in life seems to thrill or excite them, and they speak to it with a constant consistency that just brings everyone down. It's, it's causing all sorts of trouble, and it needs to be dealt with. And it's below-the-surface kind of stuff. And it defiles. It, it, it spoils from the root up because it... He's saying there's no good fruit that can come from this. Bitterness is a massive threat, not just to the community, but to the individual as well. And if you want to know this in a different way, think, think the Lion King. I'll explain why. Scar. There's a scene, it's very brief, early moments of the film, where the king goes to his brother, Scar. He says, I didn't see you at my son's coronation. He says, my life was fine until he was born. And then bitterness became the plot line for all sorts of evil, a willingness to plot murderous intent and dissension of a family and the entirety of the movie. I don't want to spoil it, but you probably should have seen it by now. <laughs> That's what bitterness does. That's what bitterness is. And then he explains it further. He gives us a, a biblical example, if, if you don't like the Lion King. He goes, it's like Esau. Genesis 25. Esau, who was the firstborn son, he, he had the birthright as such. He, he had everything that he would ever want and need in life. Even if you were to read the story, his father, although parents shouldn't, he did. He was like, that's my fave. And then one day, out of starvation and arguably just hunger, he was a woodsman in the woods. He can get a meal. 
He knows what to do. He sees his brother making some red stew, and he says, give me that. And he sells his birthright. We don't have that same concept culturally, but that's like saying, have the deed to my house. I don't care. I need to eat now. What good is it to me if I starve? That's what he says, Genesis 25. What is the author trying to portray in that? He's saying when you are in a, a headspace, when you are in a place where your faith is being tested to its nth degree, you will make bad decisions that have terrible consequences. You'll sell it all. And his name uh, being Edom, a reference which means red, which is a direct reference to uh, the stew that he purchases from his brother Jacob, is essentially this. This is the guy whose stomach ruled his heart and his head. His cravings and his appetites overcame everything that was good and directly given from God by birth for him. That's, that's Esau. That's the cautionary tale of who he is. And, and we see that same understanding and motif play throughout the New Testament as, as we're told there is a war within us as your spirit rages war with your flesh. Now, again, here's another evidence that this is not just saying be good people. Why would, why would the author say you got to wrestle with sin because, you know what, you got to be perfect. You got to, you know, have a 100% batting average. You got to do all these things and more when he knows this to be true, that you have a redeemed spirit but an unredeemed body, that there will always be until one day we're with Christ completely in his kingdom, there will always be a war within us. So let me ask you, interactive part of the message, do you have to be perfect? No. I'm glad that that came out. It was tentative, but it was there. He's saying, but, but you have to hold on. You can't let go. In fact, there's, there's two ways that, that I would like to explain is essentially what's happening in this text. Two thoughts, one, one from psychology, one uh, will go back to scripture, but I, I think it's fascinating. The notion of dissonance or cognitive dissonance, it's this idea of um, when two competing values uh, or conflicting values are held within our life, or in other words, when our, our thoughts our values and our behaviors don't line up. We feel torn apart inside. And so we, we have to do something with that. Either we have to allow these two things to align once more, or we create some kind of uh, crazy and creative way to hold these two things in tension that really doesn't help us in the long run. Uh, an example of that would be this. To say, you know, here's the thought. I am a generous person. But my behavior is I've actually never given anything of my resources to anyone else. But the reason I rationalize that is, well, people who need a leg up financially in life, they're probably not that reliable with money anyway. See what I'm saying? We create this interesting runaround so that we can hold these two things in tension so we don't feel ripped apart. And that's kind of what he's referring to here with Esau and with this picture of, you know, don't, don't go down this route of bitterness. Don't allow it to f flourish in your life because otherwise you're going to feel like people who are ripped apart who say, you know what, I follow Jesus, but there's, it's not manifesting. It's not evidenced in your lifestyle at all. And so you have to make up some kind of understanding. Well, I want to follow Jesus, but it really doesn't do me any good. Or I want to follow Jesus, but it's really too hard to do that. 
you'll be a person ripped apart from the inside. And dissonance kept over many years, is, that's exactly what it feels like. Um, textbooks would say, it causes mental disturbance. That's a nice way of saying, it rips you up from the inside. And the only way you can do that is to come into alignment, to bring one of these things into agreement with the other. And, and that's where quitting comes in. You know what? I, I've pretty much checked out. I might as well do that completely. But the author is saying, no. Bring that craving of the flesh. Bring that tiredness in your bones. Bring that weariness of what it is as you follow Jesus, and we know it's hard, back into alignment with what you know to be true, and that's your faith. That's how you run with endurance. If any of you are an endurance runner or have tried, you know that you're not running fast enough to call it hard. It's just that you do it so long that eventually you want to throw up. You know, talk to an ultramarathoner. They're barely running at a shuffle. But what's hard about it? They're doing it for like 15 hours. That's the image we're given of the Christian faith. Hey, hey, I'm not telling you to be perfect. I'm not building sprinters. What I'm building here are people that don't stop. And when somebody falls down, we come alongside them and say, okay, get up. We're going to keep going. Now, the other image I want to give you is going right back to Esau. It says this in verse 17, though he was rejected, he had no opportunity to repent, although he sought it with tears. Some of us read that and we're like, oh, that's harsh. That doesn't sit well with me. I love, I love a biblical understanding of everyone gets second chances. Everyone has an, an opportunity to come back. What, what's going on in that text is simply this. There are some things when you sell them, you, get, you can't get it back. There's only one birthright. Jacob, or sorry, Esau sells his birthright to Jacob. Jacob essentially cashes that in. And then we see in the story that Esau comes to their father, Isaac, and he is pleading with tears, give me a blessing. Give me uh, the, the birthright of a firstborn. And Isaac's response is like, I only have one. And so you're going to get passed over. The, the imagery is this. This is something that, that we, don't, we don't mess with. Oh, I'll walk away for a bit. I'll come back later. That, that we, you can stumble. You can crawl. You can struggle the whole way through, but don't quit. There's space for everything but walking away because walking away is simply this. I, I can't give you back what you've thrown away. In fact, all of this builds, and these two images help us with the remainder of the text, verse 18 to 27 as we read it, which are essentially a, a comparison of two mountains. It's speaking of Mount Sinai, Exodus 19, and then Mount Zion. And essentially the comparison is this. If you recall in the Old Testament, Mount Sinai, where the people come to the mountain, it's shaking, it's covered in cloud, it is fearsome in sight and in all of its activity, where no person or beast could touch the mountain or they would be struck dead. And God's saying to his people, this is my presence, come down to you. And he's saying, you, 
the author is saying, you, you haven't come to that mountain, you've come to a new one. And he points to Zion, which speaks to Jerusalem, but, but it speaks to more than that. This is an archetype that we see again and again in Scripture, which is not just a location, but actually God's dwelling, his presence. You've come to him, and in that space you've received grace, you've received invitation, you can come and you can rest. From ground that was shaking and trembling to firm footing. From a place where you knew that you had nothing to offer and you were doomed to try to a place where you are welcome, you are bidden in, you are given the gift of entry. What, what is it saying? It's saying this. Your hope is not found in anything but the gift of the welcome and entry given you through Jesus Christ. Again, going back to this, and, and do you not see how the author is interweaving the Old Testament imagery, present reality, and then the unseen reality all at once to give this robust picture of like, all these things are happening for you, dear church, and you need to see them at once. And you need to see them at once to grab a real hope. Because you need to understand that he's, when he speaks to this great cloud of witnesses, we talked about a few weeks prior, what happens to those who die in Christ? The New Testament is emphatically clear. They're with Jesus. That in the intermission of Jesus' death and resurrection, that he goes to Hades, he kicks down the gates of hell, he snatches up the keys of death, and he takes the righteous dead with him in his wake, and they are with him in his presence, watching and waiting the coming of his new creation. And that's this picture of Mount Zion. That's that archetype that we are talking about. This is not some, you know what, one day it'll be okay. It's now it's okay and will be made okay. Jesus has won and will win. That, that there is a, there is a Zion, Mount Zion, there is an archetype of his presence, his dwelling, his unchallenged and forever reign that we look forward to. In fact, some of your Bibles might have the caption of the later passage of Hebrews 12 saying this, the new, the new kingdom or coming kingdom. You, when you read your Bible, you got to see something here. Jesus enters the scene saying, I, I've come to tell you the kingdom is at hand. I've, I've come to tell you that all these rebellious kingdoms are being thrown down. I've come to tell you that I'm, I've established and I'm building and you're going to be participants in a new kingdom as my co-regents and rulers. And that, that is deeply impactful for us if we grab hold of it as a new hope. What is hopelessness? It's, I don't know what's going to come, and I don't know if it's any good. What is hope? I know what's coming. I know it's awesome. And that's what he's saying. Church, we haven't been invited to Mount Sinai, which is a picture of it's not hopelessness, but it's a picture of we can't ascend, only God comes down. That would have been deeply impactful for an Old Testament people, an ancient people who, if, if you consider this, why did they always go to the mountaintops? Because that's in their mentality. They, they weren't unintelligent people. They weren't slow or ignorant. In their understanding, it's, that's how you ascend. That's how you get to the gods. That's a promise of something better. There's hope up there. And when God comes down, he's like, you don't come up. You can't. But 
But take, take hope, take courage. I've come down to you to provide a way that you can come up. But not this mountain, a better one. That is my dwelling place. That is my sure presence. That is gifted to you by my righteousness. Not any that you can afford on your own. And that does not shake like Sinai. Notice this. He says, the end result is this. In life, you're going you're gonna to be shaken. It's a universal experience of what it means to be a human. But in Christ, he says, I'll, I'll give you a firm foundation. I, I need to drive this point home. I actually think it's the main point of this entire series. As a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, your best life is not this one, but it's in the next. And we struggle with that. We struggle with that culturally because we tell our kids from the moment they can understand us, you can be anything you want. Not true. You know, like, I've, I've actually attempted this with my kids. I want to be an astronaut. Not going to happen. <laughs> I mean, like, you, you got my genes. There's no way you're going to fit in a capsule. <laughs> Economically, sociologically, uh, even our locale, like, chances are slim. But instead we say, ah, anything you want. So we, we have this idea of like, like, life is limitless. And then the moment we find limits, what are we? We're discouraged. We're downcast. We want to get off this crazy thing. We preach a very weak gospel where it's like, you know what? God is always going to add to you. It's going to be up and to the right. Your life should be a blessing upon blessing upon blessing. And then we experience loss and we're like, what do we do? And we, it's, we've negated all of the gospel, which tells us you are equipped for loss, that we can mourn together yet celebrate in his presence. This great cloud of witnesses is going, we're here. We're here and there's a party to come. You know, this, this, we're about to transition to the Lord's table and that's what this picture is. We, we see its culmination in a wedding feast. I've got a couple of my friends' weddings coming up, and I'm excited. We've got a big family wedding next week. And I, you know what, what I'm looking forward to? I, I'm officiating, so definitely not the sweating in front of people with a big suit in the sun. <laughs> I, I, I'm looking forward to the party after. Because guess what? I, I get a brother. I've only had one, and now I have two. I will have two. It's a picture of something that's been afforded and gifted to me, and I just get to celebrate it's a picture of I get to celebrate that not just by myself, but at, at a large table in a big room with all the people I love. Church, that, that's this great cloud of witnesses going, come on, make it to the finish line. We know what's here. Get there because you know what? Bigger than you could have ever hoped, dreamed, or imagined, there is, there's something waiting for you. And all you get is, is a snapshot of the one that is all you need, and that's Jesus. You know, I, I honestly believe this. The resurrected Jesus shows up to show us more than just, hey, uh, I'm here. It's, guys, take a good look. This body, this, this is going to be like you. I know that Jesus is greater than the angelic beings. But he says to his followers, like, hey, as I'm raised, you'll be raised. So, so what does that make us when we're raised in glory? Pretty awesome. 
enough to remember and, and be familiar with each other. I was having this conversation with my daughters just the other day. I'm like, what age do you think we are in heaven? My girl's like, we want to be 10. Like, <laughs> arguably, it's because you are 10. But got me thinking, I'd like to be 10 too. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know, but it, it's enough to recognize each other. And then yet there are these moments where the disciples are like, who's that? There's something transcendent about it too. Victorious in the resurrection because you know what? Every enemy that's been thrown down because Jesus is establishing a forever kingdom doesn't get to come back. And we do. We're promised what our hearts desire most. And that's, you know what? We know that this life can be better. And it's not going to be this one, but it's going to be the next. And so when we come to the table, I, I encourage you in this way. If, if you're a follower of Christ, to, to truly consider your heart. Where have I wanted, where have I been tempted to throw in the towel because this feels too hard, too much for me? Where I've looked around and said, or thought to myself, there's got to be something better to say, Lord, I've fooled myself. Remind me once more that you are better. And that my best life is not this, but the one to come. And for those of you who are maybe hearing this for the first time and don't know Jesus, I invite you into this space. That if you want, as people are getting up and they're participating in this, if you would like to pray and ask God, Lord, if, if, if this life isn't the best, but there's one to come, would you speak to my heart? Would you reveal a picture of that? Because he gives us so clearly in the person of his son, but also the filling of his spirit. And I, and I believe that he would honor that prayer and allow the spirit to reveal himself to you. Let me pray. And after I pray, you are, the team's gonna lead us in one more song while they're doing that. I invite you to take the elements, bring them back to your seat. I'm gonna come back up and lead us in one song. So Father, I pray that you would help us as a people work deeply this, this message of the gospel into our hearts and our minds to grab hold of a firm foundation of the faith that we have in you that, Lord, it, it wouldn't be shaken. Lord, we're invited to stumble. We're invited to fall. But, Lord, we are, we are encouraged again and again not to quit. And so, Lord, when things feel really good, Lord, it's easy to run hard after you. But, Lord, when they are difficult and we feel alone, it is easy for us to look for a way out. Jesus, be near to us in that place. Remind us of your grace. Remind us of who you are. And, Lord, I pray today in a very real way, bring in the truth of all these things that are revealed at once in your word, the, the presence of what it means to follow Jesus, the fullness of your spirit growing in our relationship, growing with you. And Lord, that picture of Mount Zion, that's that picture of your kingdom, your completion, your presence. And Lord, the best life that is yet to come with you. And we thank you that we anticipate, Lord, as we approach the table, this, this is a placeholder for what is going to be a far better meal with far more people, with way more celebration. And so we take it with that anticipation in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.